Getting vaccines to the neediest people is a logistical, political and organizational challenge, even at the best of times. Now imagine how difficult it must be during a deadly pandemic, which has already claimed well over half a million lives in Brazil. Late in May, a team of doctors, nurses and frontline workers from US-based NGO Health in Harmony, the Federal University of Pará's Medical School and Instituto Socioambiental embarked on a three-week expedition taking two boats filled with ice and 1,400 doses of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine to remote riverside communities in the Amazon. In large part, the expedition was made possible by donations in local associations which helped campaign and raise funds. This week, we talked with one of the people who helped take these vaccines into the heart of the Amazon rainforest. Engineer Marcelo Salazar spoke with us over the phone from the city of Altamira in Pará, and that's why sound quality might be a little uneven during this episode. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. I'm Marcelo Salazar, the executive coordinator of Health and Harmony in Brazil. I'm an engineer and I work for uh, 20 years uh, with riverines and traditional communities in the Amazon rainforest. We are in a region called the Meadowland in the Xingu Basin. Uh, and we are based in Altamira, the city where all the fight against Belo Monte Dam were, were performed. Uh, so it's, a, it's an area of a lot of conflict, a lot of deforestation, illegal logging, illegal mining. Uh, and for this, it's a double challenge to reach the traditional community in this region. So uh, we just uh, finished uh, 20 one day's expedition uh, to vaccinate the riverings from uh, five conservation units in the Meadowland. It was about 2,200 kilometers uh, navigating through the Xingu River, Iriri River, and Rio do Anfrisio. And we got about, not about, exactly, 742 uh, people vaccinated and 31 uh, didn't want to, to take um, the shot. The, the first challenge is to, to get the rights of the riverines uh, guaranteed by the government. So it was a long fight involving the general attorney and several partners here in the, in the area, uh, for example, the local associations of the, those riverines, the Instituto Socioambiental, uh, a well-known NGO here in Brazil that works in the same region, um, Brit Shingu Movement and other organizations. So uh, once we got the vaccines to this uh, public, the second challenge was uh, how to organize uh, logistics to guarantee um, that all the riverings had chance to, to be vaccinated uh, and to guarantee that the vaccines uh, should be uh, well 
how can I say, like a well, not freeze it, but in a, in a right temperature all the time. So the the ice logistics is something <laughs> that we we should like really take care of because it's a long distance and we need to to plan carefully uh, to to not be without ice uh, during the expeditions. Marcelo, you talk about the need for bringing the right amount of ice on the expedition to make sure the vaccines are stored properly. So just to have an idea here, this vaccine should never exceed 8 degrees Celsius or 46 degrees Fahrenheit. And you faced a long trip right in the middle of the rainforest with high temperatures and even higher humidity levels. How did you manage it? And what were the conditions like? Yeah, uh, so here we, we have luck with the, the weather because we are in the uh, beginning of the dry season, but the, the water, the water level of Xingu and Iriri River was really nice for navigation and the temperature was not too high. So we, we got boxes with, uh, and the ice and the vaccine and extra boxes of ice in the boat and uh, and we got some rides from uh, other partners to get other boxes of ice during the way like uh, in some specific point uh, to, to not uh, stay without uh, the right temperature along the trip. So you say the temperature was not that high but how much are we talking about here in terms of degrees? Oh, I think be, uh, something between uh, 25 and 30 degrees Celsius. Like we are just in the beginning of the, the dry season, which means the, the uh, Amazon summer, but the, the temperature will, will get hotter in the, the following month. On multiple occasions, we've reported that even though they are included on the government's vaccine priority lists, indigenous communities are not receiving jabs as quickly as they should be. Now, this situation is even worse for riverside communities, which are often even more isolated and weren't included as a priority group. Can you tell us a bit more about the expedition? What were the major challenges you faced getting the vaccine to these people? Okay, so uh, first of all, it's important to clarify that there are, uh, uh, in this region, we are two different groups of traditional communities. One of them is indigenous people uh, that had a different calendar and different challenges uh, of vaccinations. And the other one was the riverings uh, inside the extractivist reserves. The riverings are... Uh, different traditional communities in the, in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, but both, they, they had a lot of uh, challenges. First of all, with the, because of the lack of the vaccine. So the indigenous got first and the riverings um, some months later. And it was necessary, uh, as I said before, a uh, huge articulation between the, uh, the federal attorney, the Ministerio Público Federal, uh, Health and Harmony, Instituto Socioambiental, the local associations, the University of Pará, and also the, the Health Secretary of Altamira and the State Secretary. 
Now, all they forced together to guarantee that the vaccines should be uh, should be addressed to these groups. And the second challenge was the fake news. A lot of fake news uh, got these communities by WhatsApp, by TV. Like we have a president that uh, doesn't help much <laughs> on this. So uh, it was like in each place we had a lot of a lot of conversations to explain exactly what is the vaccine, what is the risks, and so on. Uh, and it was like really nice to, to be with them in, and not only with health uh, individuals, but also uh, anthropologists and other persons that works already with those communities and who they trust uh, to give them like correct information about vaccination. And, and after this force, this force, just 4.2% of the people uh, didn't want to take the vaccines. And maybe they will take uh, during the second shot expedition. Distance is obviously a huge factor. I mean, it can take days by boat to get to a vaccination center in some cases. But also there's the fear that if they do leave, their home could be invaded by land grabbers. All of this, along with the financial aspect, it can make traveling to get a vaccine pretty prohibitive, right? Yeah, I think uh, many of those communities are too far from uh, the health centers in the city. Some of them, like more than five days uh, by boat. So it's very expensive to reach the city and and takes too long, like can you imagine like a community five days from the city to then come here, take the vaccines and and go back? It's about 15 days because they will stay some days in the city to, to do another uh, things they need to do. And it means 15 days without work in their land and 15 days ex- expending money on food on uh, transportation and so on. So it, can you imagine it for each family, like uh, would be like uh, very, very, very expensive. And many of those families don't have this money to to afford on this trip. And how is the health situation in these communities? How did it change during the pandemic? So, uh, in general, uh, those communities have uh, quite good food security because they have their own plantations of manioc, pumpkins, and other goods. They do the extractives, they fish and hunt uh, to, to get proteins. Uh, of course, there are some of them uh, in a poorest situation and some of them in a better situation. Uh, and during the pandemic, uh, what what is, was difficult to them is to stay in their place without coming to the city to, for example, to get the money for uh, Bolsa Familia, to get uh, uh, their products salad in the market, buy some stuff they need as, for example, machete and uh, 
um, and other instruments, shoes and clothes, medicines and so on. So what, what happened uh, in this period, in the beginning of the first cycle in the pandemic, a lot of the organizations uh, joined the land force to prepare like trips to deliver some of these materials uh, to them and to support them to trade better their products so they they uh was not necessary to them to come to the city so they they stayed more in their communities uh than other traditional communities in the Amazon rainforest as we noticed about it and and the first cases of covid-19 in this region appeared just in the second uh, half of last year. And it was uh, like light symptoms. Uh, from the riverine communities, no one died in this region. And from the indigenous communities, uh, we had uh, three deaths among 11 different indigenous territories. And much of this economic pressure comes from an increase in land grabbing and land conflicts, right? No, this was a big challenge uh, and a problem during the pandemic because land operations from the environmental agents uh, happened because of the pandemic and because of uh, Bolsonaro government that are not uh, doing what need to do to prevent and to combat the crime here in the Amazon rainforest. So there are lots of invasions from behind the indigenous territories, from behind the conservation units. And uh, in this region in particular, uh, particularly in the Altamira, Novo, Novo Progresso, and, uh, uh, and other cities around uh, was the highest highest uh, rate of deforestation in the Amazon rainforest, uh, but not necessarily uh, those invasions reach the communities because the communities are more uh, in the banks of the river and the invasions, the invasions came from the, the roads from behind their areas. Uh, lots of new uh, illegal mining spots appeared uh, last year and this year they are they're continuing to 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 appear and increase in the region and a lot of illegal logging happened uh, in the dry season last year and we have noticed they are preparing themselves um, to, to go again to the forest uh, now which they do when the rain season the rain season is uh, finishing. So this is a huge challenge uh, that we need to, to find ways to, to face. Uh, and we need a lot of the international support on that. Um, now, you mentioned the need for international support. There has been a surge in pressure from other countries and international agencies, but you're on the ground. Do you feel this global outrage with Jair Bolsonaro and his laissez-faire environmental policy is having any effect on the government's behavior? I mean, we had Vice President Hamilton Mourão just admitting this week that they would not meet their deforestation targets. Yeah, I feel that is more international interest and support, but... Uh 
not enough to face uh, what is going on in Brazil under Bolsonaro administration. Uh, we, we need more uh, support, not only to face uh, what is going on on the ground, but internationally, like stopping the the the, uh, the products that that promote the deforestation, illegal logging, and illegal mining. So uh, this is very important to to like cut these value chains that are damage the forest and the traditional communities. So beyond the immediate pressure of the coronavirus pandemic, what else should Brazil be doing to support its riverside communities? I mean, we know that their health infrastructure is often precarious, but what about on the economic side of things? The Bolsonaro government appears to believe that the only solution for prosperity in the forest is by allowing traditional communities to sell off their land to outside business ventures. But is that really the case? Yes, I think uh, I would say that it's very important to to have uh, a good healthcare system to those communities because uh, if the communities are strong and their territory and healthy, uh, it's not easier, but they they are in a better position to. Uh, to face these pressures over the forest. And on the other hand, we need to, to have more economical uh, opportunities for those communities as well. Like we need to, to value much more the forest products, the sustainable forest products that, that those communities produce. So, uh, with a good health in one hand and more value to their products. In another hand, we we need we start changing like this narrative that the forest doesn't uh, generate income. The forest is not uh, profitable enough for the country, uh, which is the opposite. So we need to uh, recognize uh, and have practical instruments for environmental services, for ecosystem services, carbon, and, and so on. And, and we, need, we need a lot of pressure to the government, uh, like uh, follow the law uh, to protect and conserve the Amazon rainforest and other forests uh, in the country. Marcelo, thank you very much. Marcelo Salazar is an engineer and works as Health in Harmony's program coordinator for Brazil. He's based in Altamira, Pará. And if you like explaining Brazil, please rate us with five stars. That will help more people find out about this show. Or you can sign up to the Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We offer a seven-day free trial, no strings attached, which gives you access to the website for a week without the need to insert any credit card details whatsoever. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. See you next week.